The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, we're going to continue in our study as an act of continuing to worship our God. We, we Studying Scripture can be an act of worship because, according to Romans 12, from God's point of view, if you're a Christian, everything you do actually should be an act of worship. We should live a life of worship, live a life that pleases God in all that we do. And so studying the Bible can be an act of worship if we do it the right way. And if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, part of that worship is understanding that Scripture, the Bible, is how God speaks to us today. He purposely had the New Testament written down 2,000 years ago by a few of his servants, mostly apostles or associates of apostles, and the book of Acts is a part of that. The book of Acts was written down, we know, by Luke, Luke the physician. But Luke was also a good friend and a disciple of the Apostle Paul. He traveled with the Apostle Paul. We've seen some of that here in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, Luke is with the Apostle Paul in the middle of a shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea. That's where we left off. And Luke wrote this book in the 60s A.D. And it's been preserved for 2,000 years by God's grace so that we can read the actual events and know true history of something that happened 2,000 years ago. Absolutely amazing. And so that's just an example of how God speaks to us through Scripture, through His Word. This is These are His thoughts put in print. What does God think? I wonder what God thinks about this. Well, read the Bible. It's the only place you're going to find it. And then He also gives the Holy Spirit to be the teacher of this truth to enlighten our understanding so that we can understand it. So, And then the more we learn about God, the more we know about God, And knowing God truly is the essence of eternal life because Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that you might know God and his son. Do you have eternal life? Most important question in the world. Do you have eternal life? The way you answer that is you look at Jesus' words in John 17. This is eternal life, knowing God, having a relationship with him that is intimate, that is real, that is based on grace, by faith, through his provision, which is Jesus Christ, the Savior, who came into this world as the God-man, lived 33 years sinlessly because he is God, and willingly went and died on a cross, even though he never did anything wrong. That was why he was born, to die on a cross as a criminal, to be crucified by the Romans as a substitute death for sinners who deserved death. And he hung on the cross for six hours, And the greatest pain wasn't the nails in his hands and in his feet and the lacerations on his back and the thorns in his head and the public humiliation in front of the people. The greatest punishment he absorbed and underwent at that time was the wrath of God the Father on a supernatural level, pouring out his wrath and his hatred for sin on Jesus, his beloved son. Because that was his solution. God is holy. He must punish sin with full fury to the fullest extent. And he did that. On Jesus, his beloved son, as a substitute for sinners, those who would recognize that, yes, I am sinful God. I can't save myself. You are holy. I deserve eternal death. Yet Jesus died in my place. I believe that. That is my only solution. That is my only hope. That's my only salvation. God, I trust in you. I commit myself to you. Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you died for me on the cross and rose again from the dead, ascended on high and reign as king of kings and lord of lords over the universe, over the earth. 
You are the Savior. I believe that. God, adopt me into your family. I don't do it by works. I do it by grace, through faith, apart from works, based on the truth of your word. God, save me. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. That's the biblical message. That's what Christmas is about. That's what we celebrate. That message is actually in Acts 28. Acts 28, if you read it, Acts 27, 28, looks just like a ship, shipwreck or a ship in duress on the Mediterranean Sea for all those verses. What does that have to do with about, with, what does that have to do with Christmas and Jesus? Well, the reason Paul was in this ship, in duress, in a storm, in a hurricane, in the Mediterranean for all of chapter 27, part of 28, is because he was a prisoner and he was being shipped from Palestine uh, first it was Jerusalem, and then he was sent to Caesarea. Now he's being sent a 1,000 miles from Caesarea as a prisoner in a Roman ship to go before Nero, the Roman emperor, as a, as a criminal, basically, to undergo trial. That's the context. And so he's on this ship, and that's where we've been for now will be two chapters. And Paul's sailing on this ship in the Mediterranean. It's a true story. And he's a prisoner, and the reason he's a prisoner is because he's a Christian. And not just any Christian. The reason he was in prison and got arrested is because he preached boldly about Jesus Christ. And the message that he preached about Jesus Christ is what I just summarized for you a minute ago. That Jesus was the God-man who's lived for all eternity, came down into this world that he created, died for sinners that they might have life in his name. And he's the only way to heaven. He's the only solution for humanity. He reigns as king of kings today and every knee needs to bow to him. And that was the message Paul preached he preached it publicly. He preached it to every man, woman, and child that he met. And many people resisted. They hated it. The authorities didn't like it. It messed up their religion. It messed up their theology. It messed up their economy. And as a result, they had the authority to arrest him. They did. They arrested him. They beat him. And now he's on his way to prison in Rome. They are thinking, hopefully, he will be subjected to the death penalty, the Apostle Paul. He is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived Christmas every single day. It was about all about Jesus Christ his ministry, his life, everything about him. So this is totally relevant to Christmas. It's all about Jesus. That's why Paul is in this situation. And, and he was normal just like us, fallen, frail, weak human being, yet at the same time, amazing supernatural faith, appointed and called by Jesus Christ personally to be an apostle, meaning to be a representative of Jesus. And he was, and he was faithful. And he's been on this ship, now the second ship, through the Mediterranean. In the middle, it's a, it's a hurricane. To get set the context, the word used in the Greek text there literally means hurricane. So they're sailing around, along in the Mediterranean, going from, they're trying to go about a 1,000 miles over to Rome, and about halfway, they hit a hurricane in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it's about November, early November of the year 59 A.D. We know this because of the fast, or the feast day that just happened and other chronological markers. And we know that's consistent even with the weather patterns, the wind patterns, and the sailing schedule even today in that area in the Mediterranean. So they, they hit a hurricane in the middle of the storm, and now they're just being tossed to and fro all over the place. And uh, there's 276 people on this massive Alexandrian grain ship that Paul is on. On this grain ship, 276 people constitute probably all men, you got the captain of the ship. You got a whole bunch of sailors on the ship. You've got a centurion, a Roman centurion named Julius, who is in charge of Paul and getting him safely and alive to Rome. He's the highest authority on the ship. 
being a centurion, he probably has many of his armed soldiers with him on this ship. There are other prisoners on this ship in addition to Paul. We know that for a fact from Acts chapter 27. We don't know how many prisoners or criminals. Most of them probably are in chains on this ship. And many of them are probably guilty of being criminals. And they're probably going to face the Colosseum in death. So Julius and his Roman commander, they're in charge of that. They've got to get these prisoners, especially Paul, safely to Rome. In addition to that, you've got all kinds of... This is a wheat ship. This is how people make their money. It was harvested down in Egypt. It's put on the ship, and they've got to sail it up to Rome where big bucks are paid for it. So there's a lot of merchants on the ship as well. So you've got a, a mixture of people, of, of these 276 people. And we don't know how many of each. We do know that the Apostle Paul is a believer. He's a Christian. We do know Luke is with him. His physician, his personal physician, and his associate is with him on the ship during this storm. And also Aristarchus, another believer who is from Asia Minor, Thessalonica, is also with Paul. So Paul's got two of his buddies there. So possibly 273 other people who don't know the Lord, who don't even know who Paul is, maybe. They don't know anything about Christianity. And there's probably a mixture of all kinds of weird pagan religion on the ship and now they've been in the middle of a storm and they have been sailing for weeks and weeks since they left palestine headed over and for the last 14 days we saw last week for 14 days they are just adrift on the sea now down in the mediterranean below italy a couple hundred miles and for 14 days there has been no sun shining no moon shining and no stars meaning it has been pitch black because of the storm they're in the midst of a hurricane in the middle of the sea it is black they can't see anything so for 14 days they haven't been able to see where they're going they navigate by the stars and there are no stars there is no sun there is no moon there is no direction they they don't have a clue where they are for 14 days they were scared to death because they thought they were going to die and paul used or luke used a, a word two times a medical term we saw last week or basically refer to the fact they lost their appetite. They have not eaten in 14 days. Maybe they had a little water to drink to survive that long, but they didn't eat anything for 14 days because they feared death. And during this time of near death, the ship going down, like the airplane going down, God spoke to Paul through an angel, and three times Paul spoke up and encouraged the men, and two of those were prophecies. And he said, if you do what I tell you to do, no one on the ship will die. 276 people. As a matter of fact, not a hair on your head will be hurt. That's a proverbial saying that he used that was well known at the time. But you got to do what I tell you to do. We will lose the ship, though. He did say that. So that's the prophecy. Paul's a prisoner, and here he is rising to the level, level of leadership that is being recognized by everybody else on board because everything he says comes to pass. And so God's going to elevate him even more in terms of his stature that he's going to be recognized as the de facto representative of God before this trip is over, all the while in chains as a prisoner with no rights. And the centurion in charge, Julius, has tremendous respect for Paul for whatever reason. Uh, he treated him very kindly at the very beginning of this trip. It could have been word of mouth or reputation. This guy, Paul, he's a prisoner, but he's different. He's a Roman citizen that also sets him apart. But he's different. He's got a reputation. He's a very kind man. He's a gracious man. He cares about me personally. He cares about everybody personally. And Julius the commander gave him special rights and privileges and very 
was very kind to him and even listened to him in the midst of the storm as throughout this months-long trip. Or occasionally, Julius would actually listen to Paul the prisoner to get his opinion about what do you think about this storm? Should we leave here? Should we dock here? Should we stay here? And early on, Julius was listening to Paul as well as the captain of the ship and the sailors and some of his consultants. And he's weighing in. He's listening to Paul. And the first time around, he dismisses what Paul says. You know what, Paul? We're not going to do what you said. We're going to do what everybody else says. And then that's how they got into trouble. And then from that point on, Julius tends to want to listen to Paul. And Paul, we talked about Paul had been on ships, uh, trips through the Mediterranean. We know from Scripture uh, probably about 11 different times prior to this trip. That's a lot. We know from Scripture in Corinthians that he had been shipwrecked two or three times before this shipwreck is about to happen. He knows what it's like to be shipwrecked. He grew up in Tarsus, which is right there by Asia Minor, down there by the Mediterranean Sea. He knows the area. He knows the winds. He knows the weather. He's an experienced man. On top of that, angels talk to this guy. He's an apostle of God. They should listen to him. So that's the context. So... 14 days into the storm, Paul finally says, you know what? You guys need to eat. God's going to save us. Just do what I tell you to do. And then everybody says, okay. And then they all eat for the first time in 14 days. They are refreshed. They had at one point on that ship in the middle of the storm, lost all hope. Luke said that we had lost all Luke, including himself. Meaning we thought we were going to die. And then that's when God stepped in spoke to Paul as an apostle with a word of prophecy to speak to the people. You will not die. Just do what I tell you to do. And so he reiterates that and says, let's eat. We haven't eaten in 14 days. They all ate. Paul gave a word of encouragement. He said, no one is going to be hurt. And it said, they all ate, were satisfied, and they were encouraged. So for the first time in weeks, they've had a glimmer of hope. You know what? We might survive this thing. I don't know how, but... This Paul guy is amazing. What resolute confidence he has. Who is this guy, this prisoner, that keeps speaking up authoritatively and everything he says comes to pass? So that's the scenario. So then they sail about 900 miles, and then all of a sudden the sailors hear land. It's 12 o'clock midnight. They can't see anything, but they think they're experts. They think they hear land, and they do. They hear, they hear the waves slashing up against the beaches and the rocks. And so when sun, the sun pops up, lo and behold, there's land. After weeks, they were right. So then they try to turn the boat around, and they're going to beach this thing. In order to beach it, it's a big ship. They've got to start unloading cargo so that it rises a little higher and get closer to the beach. And so they just start throwing everything overboard, including some wheat and everything else. And they start heading for the beach, and they're probably a couple miles away. And then, boom, smashes into something under the water, and the front of the ship gets planted in there and stuck it can't move and then the back of this massive ship is still in the middle of a hurricane and it begins to be torn to pieces board by board and everybody on board panics except for the apostle paul and the roman soldiers decided you know what we're going to kill all the prisoners because they try they might try to escape this ship is going down and so the centurion heard about the plan said no we're not going to kill the prisoners because he wanted to spare Paul. And then the centurion takes charge and says, okay, everybody that knows how to swim, get off and swim to shore. Everybody else, grab something that floats, and we'll meet you there. 
And that's where we left off last week. And everybody jumps off and all 276 people in the middle of a hurricane in the Mediterranean Sea makes it safely to shore. That is a miracle by way of providence. God's good provision. That just should not have happened. Amazing. Exactly as Paul had said. Paul gave a prophecy. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. God said, how do you know a prophet is true? Well, if what comes to pass... Based on what he said, if it comes to pass exactly as he said it would, then that validates the fact that he's a prophet of God. If he makes a prophecy about something to happen, it doesn't come to pass. That guy is a fraud. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. Stone him to death. That was the Old Testament standard from God. Paul speaks a prophecy. No one will die. Do what I tell you to do. All 276 will make it alive to shore. We will lose the ship. That is exactly what happened. That is validated. That's where we pick up in Acts chapter 28, verse 1. And Paul is validated as a representative and prophet and apostle of God. And actually, that's kind of, I believe, one of the main reasons why Luke includes this in this book of 28 chapters. He goes to great length to include this story of this trip that takes over a chapter, 60 verses in detail. Why? Because God's man, Paul, is being vindicated throughout it all. That's important because... Paul was a prophet of God. He was an apostle of God. He spoke truth. And yet his ministry is continually being undermined by naysayers and people who oppose him everywhere he goes. He's not a prophet. He's a liar. He's a compromiser. He's a deceiver. He's twisted uh, Jewish religion. You can't believe him. He's a legalist. He's polluted the gospel. And then the Corinthians Paul was dealing with. This is in 59 AD when this incident is happening. And Luke is writing it shortly thereafter in the 60s. And what's going on in 59 AD? Paul has a relationship with the Corinthians, one of the biggest churches that he planted. That's been going on for five plus years now. And the Corinthians, his church that he planted, where he was a pastor, people he loved, that he shepherded for over a year and a half, began to turn on him. Being suspicious of him, accusing him of not even being a prophet or an apostle of God. Saying he's unimpressive in person. And so they begin to criticize Paul and undermine his ministry at this very time. And here Luke says, no, you you don't know what you're talking about. He is a man of God. He is true. Let me prove it. Look what God did in this man's life just on this in the midst of this storm alone and the miracles that he did on behalf of God. So this is validating the ministry of the Apostle Paul at this moment in history, which is very, very important for his ongoing ministry of all the churches that he planted and also the Christian Jews in Jerusalem And there were many who doubted the sincerity of Paul at this time. They didn't even know Paul. All they knew is, oh, yeah, that Saul guy, the ex-Pharisee that used to go around and kill Christians. He he dragged my mother by the my grandmother by the hair into prison and had her killed as a Christian. You mean that, Paul? So we know there were Christian Jews who feared Paul. And he's been absent from Jerusalem for 20 years. They knew nothing about him just by way of reputation. No doubt there were rumors. They didn't come to his defense when he got arrested in Jerusalem publicly. And yet Luke is, that's another important reason why Luke is validating the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. So I think that's one of the overriding things that we're going to see throughout. We see it specifically in our text today. Let's go ahead and look at it. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 now that I've given you the background. And the title here, I just shipwreck at Malta. Malta is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, just 50 plus miles south of Italy. 
That's where he is right now. They've just floated there. They didn't go there by intention. They, just, they floated there. God providentially brought them there. And there aren't many places to land in the Mediterranean Sea there. And yet, at the perfect time, they land on this little island called Malta. Which is an island you can actually go visit today. 2,000 years later, you can go visit this island of 17 miles by 10 miles today. With almost half a million people living on it. In the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And I said last week, there are people here at our church who have done that very thing. They've visited this island. And and it's got an amazing history. It goes back all the way to the Phoenicians. That's Old Testament history. That's before the Greeks. The Phoenicians, who were the land, the, the seafarers on the coast of Palestine, where they built massive ships and they sailed the Mediterranean in the Old Testament. And the Phoenicians were people who spotted and came across Malta. And the Phoenicians were the ones that, in history, named Malta, Malta, which means refuge. And they found it to be a great refuge. And then after the Phoenicians came and occupied it, and then others like the Greeks came along and they occupied it, and then the Romans came along and then they occupied it, and after the Romans, others came along, and then the Muslims for centuries came along and took it over and occupied it. And then after the Muslims, the British came in for two to 300 years and took it over and occupied it. And then finally... Received its own independence in the 20th century, where it, like it has today. But what an amazing history that this island of Malta has, and it's right here in verse 1 of chapter 28. Still exists today. There's a bay there named after the Apostle Paul because he literally landed there. Well, let's go ahead and look at the shipwreck at Malta, verses 1 through 10. We'll just read through it, and I just want to highlight three points there as it guides us through the narrative of the text. Details of the shipwreck at Malta. One of the overriding things I put there is that God works all things together for good to those who know him. And that's from Romans 8.28. That's just a wonderful promise from Scripture if you're a Christian. No matter how bad life is, no matter how rotten things are going, no matter how depressed you are, if you're a Christian, Romans 8.28 is still true. God works all things together for good for those who know and love him. I remember sharing that years ago with a high school class of seniors 12th graders at a christian school and i read that verse and there was a christian student in the front row and they just they visibly and audibly got incensed when i read that verse and i know for a fact that this student was a christian a serious christian 12th grader 18 years old and i was a little whoa taken aback why are you getting so hostile all i'm doing is reading a verse god works all things together for good and she said she just couldn't believe it. So I guess she'd never really heard that verse. Well, what's what's the hard thing about it? And so her problem was with trials and suffering and hardships in her own life. So are you telling me that God thinks my parents getting divorced is good? Whoa. No, I don't. Well, that's what you just said. Well, no, I just read the verse. Well, that's what the verse says. Then I had to explain it. No. So it's important to clarify God works all things together for good doesn't mean that God thinks all things are good because he doesn't think all things are good. There are some things that are bad. They are horrible. They are terrible. And God thinks they're terrible. God thinks uh, divorce is terrible. It is damaging. The ramifications, the results, they go on for years. That is horrible. That is bad. God knows that if you're a child of God. He knows that. He sympathizes with you. But the promise is he works all things together for good. Even despite your divorce or 
your hardship or the death of a loved one or a sickness or whatever, if you're a Christian, God overrides that. He uses that. It actually becomes a part of his plan. It's actually one of the puzzle pieces in his puzzle, in his master plan. And sometimes we can't see it now, but we will when it's done. So be assured. So not all things are good. There are bad things. But God can even take bad things and work them for good. And he does here. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in this scenario with this ship going down and Paul's life at risk. God's already promised Paul years before, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. You're going to get to preach to Rome? Finally! And then Paul finally really starts to believe it, even in the face of death. And he knows he's going to get there. He just didn't know it was a as a prisoner in, in the midst of a shipwreck. But God will get him there. God does that. So let's look at point number one, the first two verses of the introduction. So they all swim to shore. And we concluded verse 44. It says they were all brought safely to land. They all were brought safely to land. Not they all made it safely themselves. They were all brought safely. So again, it's just emphasizing God is in control. He is on the throne. He's in control of the weather, not us. God controls the weather. Hurricanes, storms, tsunamis. He's in charge. He's the weatherman. In the words of the great theologian, Keith Green. He's the weatherman. So as a result, in spite of this weather, God God was the one who brought every single one of them safely to land. 276, because he said he would do that. He is true to his word. That is a fulfilled prophecy that's how that ends that is amazing so we pick up chapter 28 verse 1 so they're all on the land verse 1 and 2 the reception the reception so you can go to some islands that are nobody lives there uh like those boys that went on that island and killed each other anyway that's a different story uh, then you can go out on islands and receive an un- unfriendly reception like gilligan's island and the headhunters or You can go to an island and have a reception that maybe is friendly, but you're not quite sure. I mean, there's just a lot of possibilities. So they go to an island. They don't know what to expect. They don't even recognize this island because they're on the backside of it instead of the front side. These experienced sailors knew the front side of Malta, not the backside where they are. Until they get on the land, finally they realize where they are. So there's a reception. There are people living on this island. Well, what kind of reception did they get? Who are these people? Well, I put pagans. Pagan means just simply um, not a Christian, an unbeliever, someone who has a different religion other than biblical Christianity or Judaism. It's not necessarily a term of derision. The reception, there are pagans who live there, and these pagans are actually hospitable. It's amazing. Let's look at it. Uh, When they had been brought safely through the storm, then we, Luke says, we found out that the island that we landed on was called Malta, or refuge, which is a comes from a Canaanite word from the Phoenicians years ago, and that name stuck. We found refuge on the island of refuge. How appropriate. And when they got there, all of a sudden, uh, there are people who live there that are coming to see them, all 276 people creeping up on the beach, invading their island, invading their land. Verse 2 says, and the natives showed us. So the natives, so people, the natives are people who are indigenous to that island who live there already. And so the natives are coming up. And they're inspecting, checking things out. Who are these uh, people coming ashore? And they all kind of look different. There's a Roman soldier, a, a guy wearing all this metal and a big old massive sword. And there's another guy in chains. What's that all about? And a robe. Trying to figure it out. 
they weren't hostile. So that's amazing. So the natives, New American Standard calls them the natives. Uh, the King James calls them uh, the barbarous ones, barbarians. The only reason King James does that is because the Greek word is barbaroi, barbaroi, barbar, That word barbar, barbar, in Greek, onomatopoeic, it it comes from uh, it's literally referring to someone who speaks a language that's foreign to you. You don't know their language. So when I go and I listen to somebody who's speaking French, I have no idea what they're saying. I don't doesn't speak French or any other. That's where the word came from. So it doesn't barbarian doesn't refer to their behavior as much as their language. In other words, they start trying to talk and they, they're not Greek native Greek speakers. Because Greek was the language of the day for the Romans and Paul and the Jews and everybody else. So there was one. It was like English. It was a universal language. Greek was. And here's these Maltese guys speaking Maltese or Canaanite or whatever. And it sounded weird. And maybe they did know a little Greek on the side because they were under the influence of Greek for hundreds of years. But they're also part of the Roman Empire, so maybe they did know a little Latin, especially the guy who owned the island or lived on the island as the mayor or the guy in charge. But their native language was definitely different. That's why they're called uh, Barbaroi. Uh, New American Standard says the natives. Uh, the NIV calls them the islanders, so that's legit. So the natives show up. They meet Paul, all those 276 people, and it says they ex- showed them kindness, not just kindness, extraordinary kindness. They had sympathy. They had compassion. Oh, these guys look like they're about to die. I wonder if any of these people had drowned to death. Man, let's get them out of the water. Let's take care of them. It is freezing. It's still a hurricane here. So they're cold, they're wet, they're freezing, they're half-starved to death. They've been, uh, some of them are prisoners and probably look in terrible shape. And the natives have tremendous compassion towards them. And they show them hospitality. The word hospitable means stranger love. To be kind to someone who's a stranger to you, someone you don't know. You welcome them. And that's exactly what they, what they did on their island. They were hospitable to these intruders Showed him extraordinary kindness. How? Well, because of the rain that had set in, just pouring down, and because of the cold, they're freezing. And so they began to create a, a fire for all 276 people. That's amazing. Do you know how big the bonfire has to be for 276 people who want to roast marshmallows? That is one massive bonfire. That's like a, uh, down in Texas at the university there, That's they do this massive bonfire there at uh, Texas A&M, I think. It's like illegal, but they do it anyway huge massive for like 500 people that's the kind of fire that's going here so they want to give them warmth protection so this is a beautiful thing so these are natives they're not uh, cavemen with you know uh, bones pierced through their nose (laughs) these are natives they're human beings they're made in god's image uh they are foreigners they aren't christians they probably don't know judaism and their gut instinct is to welcome strange people with kindness and compassion why is that where did they learn that did they learn that from greek mythology because that's their religion no they didn't learn it from greek mythology where did this kindness come this natural instinct to do good to your fellow man well it came from god himself the creator genesis 127 god said the trinity said uh, we will make humans in our image we will make them male and female and god made adam and eve in his image male and female genesis 1 Every human being that comes into this world is made in God's image with a conscience. And that means with a moral barometer in their heart that God put there. That was there from birth and it cannot be eradicated in this life. And it, there is an intuitive 
barometer of right and wrong on a grand scale and a conscience and a moral barometer that knows God exists intuitively. That's Romans 1. Paul said so. God said so. Because every human being is made in God's image. And then in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says that even pagans do things that are good. Even though they don't have the law. And when an unbeliever, when a Gentile who doesn't have scripture does things that are in keeping with the law, that simply indicates that they have the law written on their heart. Well, what law is that? Well, it's the law that when Jesus summarized the law in the New Testament, he did it. And he said, well, two things. Love God, love man. Jesus said, that's the summation of the law. Paul says in Romans 2, every human being has the law written on their hearts. Love God, love man. So if scripture says that every human being, because of their conscience and the moral barometer that God put in their heart, if they are commanded to love God, that means that presupposes they know God. And that's exactly what Romans 1 says. Every human being knows God exists. He know, They know he's the creator. And we talked about this. So anybody that says they're an atheist, they're not telling the truth. They are lying. And Paul says they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They love their sin more than they love the creator. That's the issue going on. And here's evidence of it. These are pagans. They've never read the Bible. They don't know scripture. They don't know Judaism. They don't know Christianity. And yet their first inclination is to love their fellow man. Where'd that come from? From the conscience God created them with. Morality. Every human being has it. And they act on it. And they act on it in a good way. This is called common grace. Can unbelievers do good things? Yes. Some Christians say, well, everything an unbeliever does is filthy rags. Even if it's good. I don't agree with that. That's misquoting the book of Isaiah. Not everything an unbeliever does is filthy rags. What they're confusing is there's nothing an unbeliever can do by way of good works to earn forgiveness from God. And there's nothing they can do by works to earn entrance into heaven. Can't do that. But unbelievers can do good things. They can do good works, relatively speaking, towards humanity, towards their fellow man, as a result of common grace because of the conscience that God created them with. That's called common grace. They can do good works. Practically speaking, it's, there's plenty of examples in the Bible. Here's one right here. They showed us kindness, Luke said. Extraordinary. It's amazing. They treat me better than my in-laws do. So this is where it comes from. So all believers have this capacity, this innate conscience, and the capacity for human goodness. And it's like when my kids were little, and if they were, one of them was drowning, and some Satan worshiper decided to jump in the pool and save my drowning kids praise the thank you thank you mr satan worshiper for saving my three-year-old kid from drowning that was a good deed by the way you're not going to heaven for that but thank you for saving my drowning anyway so it's called common grace so this was amazing this is where it came from so they were being good to them um so let's go on to number two so that's the reception then there's a a reaction a reaction to Paul. Reaction from the natives as they're watching Paul, assessing Paul. They're trying to figure out who these 276 people are. Verse 3. So they're building the bonfire. But when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. So there's a huge, massive bonfire they have to build. And Paul's out there uh, gathering sticks for the fire. Why is he out there gathering sticks for the fire? Is it because he's just a tremendous uh, leader and he always has to be doing something? Well, the text doesn't say that. It could very well be that I know if I was the centurion in charge and we're in the middle of a storm and we're on a deserted island and I'm freezing and I got like 20, 30 prisoners at my disposal, I would make them build the fire, not me. 
I am not going out collecting wood. I mean, that's what I did when my kids were little. When we go camping, I'm not collecting the wood. I'm the dad. You go get the sticks by the spiders under the trees. Thank you very much. So we don't know. But nevertheless, Paul was compliant and he was a hard worker. So Paul's out there gathering wood for the fire, digging for it in the middle of the rain. Got to dig deep to get the dry ones. He's getting sticks. He brings them over. He lays the sticks on the fire. And all of a sudden, a snake, a viper, just bolts out from the fire. Why? Because of the heat. So the snake is clinging to a whole bunch of sticks. He throws it in there. And then the fire hits the snake. The snake reacts, flies out of the fire, uh, bites the first thing he can. The first thing he finds is Paul's hand. And this viper bit Paul on the hand and clung to his hand and wouldn't let go. And, And we know that snakes can do that. Sometimes they get caught and they can't let go. I've had cats on my arm doing that. Can't let go because they're stuck in your clothes or whatever. When I used to own cats, I've had a dog do that that was in my backyard that wouldn't let go. That was scary. And here's a snake that does the same thing. So here's this viper. So he comes to the public fire and then all of a sudden a viper jumps out, grabs Paul by the hand. It's a viper. It's a deadly one. It's an indigenous snake at the time. Uh, The natives know what kind of snakes live on their island. One of them definitely was deadly. This was it. And it grabs onto Paul, and Paul's got it. He can't shake it off. Initially, it's just hanging on his arm. They see this. The natives do. They panic. They freak out. Uh-oh. Deadly snake. This guy's dead. That's what they conclude, verse 4. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand. So here's Paul with the snake. Paul is not panicking, by the way. He's not flipping out. He's got, oh, wow. Snake just. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. So here they welcome everybody. They welcome Paul. How you doing? Here's some cocoa. And all, next thing we know, Paul's a murderer. They accuse him of being a murderer. Why? And though he has been saved from the sea, justice should be a capital J in your Bible or DK, who was the mythical goddess, who was the daughter of Zeus who is the goddess of justice. She's the goddess who gets you back for what you did. The karma god. This guy's obviously murder. He needs to be punished. He's not going to get away with it. And our great goddess, DK, she's caught up with him. And she's going to kill him and expose him for what he really is. He's a murderer. They don't even know who he is. That's what they conclude. This is their false religion. Formal religion that they believe in. It is wrong. It's mythology. It is not true. It's paganism. And they say that DK has punished him, struck him, and she has not allowed him to live. He's going to die. So everybody, just watch. He's going to swell up. He's going to fall over dead. That's how deadly and poisonous this snake was. Well, verse 5. However, that didn't happen. Paul shook, finally shook the creature off, fing, and flicks the snake into the fire. And I found out this morning that snake, cooked snake is supposed to be tasty like chicken, is what I heard. He shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. So Paul's standing there. He is not affected whatsoever. It doesn't swell up. He doesn't fall over dead. And the natives are waiting. They're watching. They're timing this. What's going on here? That's a deadly snake. He should be dead. Nothing's happening. Whoa. We thought this guy was a murderer. They changed their opinion dramatically, verse 6. But they were expecting that Paul was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time. I don't know how long that is. Hours? After they had waited a long time and they're spreading the word around. They had seen that nothing unusual happened to Paul. So they changed their minds. There it is. They changed their minds. He's not a murderer. 
And they began to say that he was a God. Wow. He goes from murderer to God, just like that. And this is indicative of false religion. It is very fickle. Very fickle. Believe one thing in one minute, something else. And it's based on emotion. It's not based on divine revelation or logic or thought. It's emotion. And also based on false ideas. Ridiculous notions. And this is important about false religion. So the, the, re, the reaction from the people, people are superstitious and fickle. And superstitious is probably the key word. That being superstitious is key of all false religion. And it manifests itself in many different ways. From, oh, look at, oh, you walked in front of a black cat. Or a black cat walked in front of you and now something bad is going to happen. That's superstitious. Oh, don't walk under that ladder. Something bad will happen to you. That's superstitious. We have all kinds of superstitions. Oh, it's Friday the 13th. That's superstition. Oh, I'm not going to change my socks for this reason. Oh, that's superstitious. I'm not going to do this or that for that. So we have all kinds of superstitions. None of them are true. It comes out of false religion, wrong human thinking. When I was in, actually, when I was in Ukraine teaching the MDiv class, there were about 30 guys in there. Most of them were pastors. And we were in a room, and it was like really, really hot. And I'm, I'm dripping with sweat. And all these guys are dripping with sweat, and they all, they're all men. They all stink. This room stinks. I'm in there for eight hours a day. And in the morning, I, I open that door over there, and I open that window over there to get some cross ventilation. And then every time I take a break after 15 minutes, I go, I come back, and the, that door is closed, and that window is shut. And it's 1,000 degrees. I'm like, what in the world is going on? So the next break, I do the same thing, open it up, come back, boom, and it's closed again. This is going on for like two days, and I'm dripping with sweat. I've had it finally. And so I talked to my translator at break. I said, what, what's the deal? I keep opening the doors and opening the windows, and somebody keeps closing. Oh, yeah, you don't, aren't you aware? Aware of what? Of the spirits of uh, Satan who come through doors and windows here in Ukraine. I said, no, I wasn't aware of it. Well, yeah, let me tell you about it. And this was like common lore among the Ukrainians. Are you, you kidding me? Seriously? Yeah, so if there's a wind at all blowing, or if you hear a wind... In the room, that's a, a, demon, a, a bad spirit, an evil spirit. I said, no, that's refreshing air. That is not a demon. I said, please keep the window and the door open. He said, well, they're going to get mad. I said, I don't care. I'll get, I, just let's do it. I'll, I'll put up with it. I'll, we'll talk theology if we have to about these demons that don't exist. God made air. God created air. God created fresh air. Satan believes in hot air. Anyway. So by Wednesday, I think by Wednesday or Thursday, I had my way. And just out of courtesy, and I was the guest, and they allowed me to, to do that. Probably against their conscience. Anyway, but that, that's a true story. And I'm thinking, and my translator, he understood that this was superstition. This was wrong thinking. This is, uh, you know, when you're a, a pagan or an unbeliever, this is how you're raised to believe. Just even culturally uh, in that part of the world so there are many examples of that so that's what these guys believe they had a lot of weird superstitious views about things they didn't have divine revelation that was the problem if you don't have divine revelation where god intervenes with a prophet who says thus saith the lord and then he writes it down and codifies it in a book where it can't be changed by fickle humans then you're going to end up with all kinds of cockeyed weird changing inconsistent views that are religion that are binding on people that are not good that are enslaving actually and behind it all is satan satan is the master of false religion and that's where it comes from ultimately and so every ideology and christian or belief 
religious belief and ideology or philosophy in the world that is not biblical or Christian ultimately comes from the prince of the power of the year, Satan, whose goal it is to enslave people in fear and hide them from the truth. And that's what's going on here with these people. They're not doing it maliciously. Paul still loves them. Paul still wants to give them the gospel. He, he does. He still ministers to them. I mean, think about us. Somebody turns on you, you know, you're about to die from snake and people are pointing the finger at you, calling you a murderer. You deserve to die. They're not helping you. You deserve to die. I hope you die. DK, the mythological guy, she's getting back. You deserve it. What did you do in your previous life? What did you do last month? I mean, that's just vicious. And they're, sta- they're all standing around taking bets, waiting for the apostle to die. Instead of helping him. Now, our tendency would be like two hours. Like, oh, okay. No, you're not going to die. You're not a murderer. As a matter, you're a god. You're okay. Many people would have a grudge of bitterness and unforgiveness towards those people. Well, just wow. Just two hours ago, you wanted me dead. Now I'm your friend. Really? I want nothing to do with you. That's the natural human reaction. Paul doesn't do that. Paul's a Christian. He loves people. He represents God. Jesus loves sinners. That's his job. He's going to love these people despite their paganism and wrong thinking. And their fickle thinking. They change their mind. He's not a God. Verse. Let's go on to the next point. 7 through 10. The revival that takes place as a result. This is all the grace of God. This is the grace of God moving through Paul. Luke, no doubt, and Aristarchus are helping and assisting Paul. So they go through this scene. Uh, Paul gets bit by a snake. He doesn't die. By the way, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 to the other apostles, the 12 apostles and their associates, Jesus told them in preparing them, he said, you're going to be my spokesman, especially in the future when I leave. And good things will happen. Bad things will happen. Some of the bad things will happen is you will be arrested for preaching for me. And that happened to Peter and John and the apostles. And you may be beaten by the authorities. Some of the good things will happen is you're going to have amazing authority from on high. The Holy Spirit of God will speak through you when you don't know what to say. And also you'll be able to do miracles. And one of the miracles Jesus said in Luke 10 to the apostles to prepare them for ministry was that you'll be able to smash serpents underfoot. That's what he told them. Now, literally, that means one thing, but also metaphorically and spiritually, that could mean something because Satan was considered a snake. You will have authority over Satan. He's the great serpent. But you'll also have authority over serpents who are dangerous if it was taken literally, which Mark 16 indicates. And so here's Paul literally having authority over a deadly snake because he's an apostle. Because God allowed it in that moment of time. That was a miracle, by the way. God did a miracle through Paul at that moment. To show them that he was a prophet of God. So verse 7 through 10. Uh, the revival. Now in the neighborhood of that place. Were, land, were lands belonging to the leading man of the island. So this is an official uh, term. Leading man. Like I said earlier. The mayor. The head honcho. The chief of the island. So here's a guy that either inherited this power, got elected to power, was appointed to power. But there is a recognized leader of this island, and he's the man. He's the leading man. He's the chief. His name is Publius. He has authority. He has power. He has money. He has property. He has a massive estate and apparently a huge mansion or two because of the way he's able to accommodate 300 surprise visitors 
in a moment's notice. It's amazing. Some of us, we want to invite two people over to our house and we have to deliberate for three days and pray about it if we can have those two people over for two hours. Look at Publius. Verse 7. The leading man of the island named Publius who welcomed us. Wow. So not only the natives were very kind, this Publius guy, the guy in charge was welcoming. Maybe that's where they got it from. Like prophet, like people. I mean, the people follow their leaders many times. He has an influence. Publius was very kind. He's very generous. He's very hospitable, very welcoming. He wasn't afraid of strange people. And he opens up his arms and his island to these people. Probably used to having people coming by on boats and ships all the time. So Publius uh, welcomed Luke and Paul and all 276 of these strangers. And they, he entertained them courteously for three days. Can you imagine three days? 276 people entertaining them for three days. Where in the world did he put them all? Where did they sleep? How did they feed 276 people? I can't even imagine that scene on this 2,000-year-old little island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Wow. But they did. Uh, verse 8. So they're hanging out at Publius's house for three days. And it came about while Paul was visiting that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fevers, plural. So the fevers kept coming and going. They wouldn't go away. That indicates there's an ongoing problem, plural. Recurrent fever. And dysentery. He had dysentery. The King James Bible says he had a bloody flux. Think about that. When was the last time you had a bloody flux? I don't know what a bloody flux is. It's just I thought it was cool. A bloody flux. That's King James, 1611. The Greek word is ducenterio. Ducenterio. Keep in mind, what was Luke by way of profession? He was a doctor. He was a medical professional. At times he used terms of precision in the medical realm and here here's the sign of him doing it he knows exactly he can make a diagnosis for paul paul what we have here is we have a bloody flux well what does that mean well actually technically that is dysentery well what does that mean well that means he has a disease in his intestines well what does that mean well you know on the inside anyway so luke's got to go into all this medical detail and then paul says i oh, forget it be healed boom and he was healed That's what happened. He's got dysentery, fevers, coming and going, getting severe. And Paul went in to see him and after he had prayed. There it is. He, after he had prayed. What is that? He's he is publicly letting them know. No, they, look, your native people were wrong, Publius. I am not a god. I am a nobody. But I represent the king. His name is Jesus and God the Father. He is God. He's the creator. He's the judge. He's all powerful. He does miracles. And I believe that he can heal you right now what paul was doing by he prayed he prayed to god he prayed publicly it's not his power it's god's power he did miracles in jesus's name when god ordained it and after he had prayed he laid his hands on the sick old man why is he doing that he is showing that he could have healed him without laying his hands on him because plenty of miracles were done without laying on of hands but here in this intimate setting he's showing no doubt the family his dad publius who was probably there everybody there where there was a witness that, yes, I pray to God for power, but God uses his people. And he's using me as a vessel, as a vehicle, as an apostle, as his representative for his power at this moment of time to accomplish his will. And that's exactly what's going on here with the laying on of hands. And then, 
boom, instantly he was healed. Amazing. Here's another miracle. It's a miracle that they got saved on land. It's a miracle that that snake didn't kill him. It's a miracle that he does right here with the laying on of hands instantaneously with a deadly disease. And then there's a revival, and that's when the revival begins in verse 9. And after this had happened, because there were eyewitnesses, there were two or three eyewitnesses, and they spread the word, man, you won't believe it. And all the, the people of the island probably knew that Publius, the man in charge, his dad was deathly ill with an incurable disease. And this, this guy that we thought was a murderer and a god came in there and healed him instantly on the spot. Who is this man? And then there's uh, Julius, the... The Roman centurion, you know, in charge. Well, he's a prisoner, actually. He has no rights. <laughs> he's a prisoner. Really? Wow, he's a pretty impressive prisoner. Verse 9. After this happened, the rest of the people on the See, there it is. The word got out. The rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to Paul and get this and were getting healed, getting cured. This is the grace of God. It's amazing. Paul has been in ministry now for about 25 years. And we've seen Paul go to city to city to city, region, country, all kinds of people, plenty of times where he never did a miracle. Plenty of times where he saw somebody get sick, plenty of times where he saw somebody maybe die and he didn't do a miracle. He didn't heal people necessarily all the time everywhere he went. He did do miracles, but not all the time everywhere he went. As a matter of fact, he himself was sick at the beginning of this journey. We know that from Galatians and other books. Actually, the beginning of chapter 27 said at the beginning of the trip, when he left Caesarea, they went about 40 miles, stopped there. I think it was in Sidon. And it says that the centurion let Paul see his friends to be attended to. And the Greek word refers to the sicknesses and the ailments that he had. Paul was sick. Well, Paul's a miracle. He can heal people. Why doesn't he heal himself? Well, he didn't. And the point being, miracles happen at the sovereign discretion of God in the Bible every single time. And somehow God communicated that to his messengers and prophets of when it was time. He didn't heal everybody all the time. Later in the book of Timothy, Paul's with Timothy, and Paul heard that Timothy was sick, and it could have been severely sick, and he wasn't getting any better. And Paul said, oh, be healed in the name of Jesus. That didn't happen. He said, you know what, Paul? Have a little wine, maybe red wine or whatever for your stomach, and see if that kills some of the germs to help you feel better. He didn't, he didn't do a miracle for him. So that that's very important to know in understanding miracles, how God does miracles at his own discretion and who he does it through his apostles. The rest of the people, all the people on the island came and they got healed of their diseases. And no doubt Paul is telling them they are being healed in the name of Jesus, as Peter did. Silver and gold have I none, but be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, who's that? Proceeded to tell him. And I, I believe there was a revival on the island. And here Julius of the center is watching all this, you know, this whole time. Oh, Paul is such a gracious man. He's so intelligent. He's so kind. He's such a servant. And he, he says prophecies and they come true. And he's healing all these people. And wow, this is unbelievable. Who is this man? Could be that Julius got saved. Tradition, early church tradition says that Publius became a believer. Early church tradition says that Publius became the first pastor of the island of Malta. And it could be that he had a, a, a church startup on the spot. And he apparently had to come a massive mansion to have a, a nice mega church in. With all, it says the whole island came, we're getting healed. Pastor Publius. And apparently Pastor Publius was executed for his faith. By Hadrian, I think it was the, the Roman emperor. 
a couple decades later. Very sad. So that's the revival. Paul is healing in the name of Jesus, verse 10, and they also honored us with many marks of respect. They just treated, uh, treated them kindly. They were in his house for three days. After three days, apparently they were able to find accommodations throughout the island and elsewhere. And it turns out they're on this island for three months on the island of Malta. They can't go anywhere. It's too dangerous. Three months. God preserves every single one of them. So we're going to pick up next time at the end of three months and see what God has as God is sovereignly trying to get Paul to Rome. And he will succeed. By the way, I just want to make one more note here because there are uh, plenty of so-called Bible teachers and evangelists. You can see them on television uh, their books are in the Christian bookstores. You hear them on the radio uh, that they are healers and they go around. They're doing miracles. Give me a buck. I'll give you a miracle. That's been going on all throughout church history. And if you're a Christian, you should be able to do miracles too. expect a miracle as a matter of fact. Yet all throughout, we have been through the book of Acts in detail, 28 chapters, which covers the span of 35 years. The only miracles that we have seen happen in the book of Acts, were done directly by God himself, like when he struck Herod dead, or by an apostle. That's really important to keep in mind. So uh, Acts chapter 2, on the day the church began at the day of Pentecost, it says that all the people were amazed at the signs and the wonders being done through the hands of the apostles. And that never changes all throughout the whole book of Acts. Through 35 years of church history, and that's always been true. These miracles that are amazing. And for us, I, I haven't seen these kind of miracles in my life, the years I've been a Christian. And I'm not surprised by that because Scripture is clear. Jesus was able to do these miracles in, in his apostles to validate their preaching ministry and teaching ministry and to validate their writings that would eventually come that this is indeed the word of God. So uh, some might say, well, you're saying we don't have miracles today. No, we do have miracles today. They're actually recorded for us right here. They're still just as amazing. And every answered prayer, in a sense, is a miracle. Every providential deed that God does through the circumstances of uh, life to accomplish something is a miracle. Every person that hears the gospel and gets saved, transformed, born again, adopted in the family of God for all eternity, that's the greatest miracle of all, isn't it? Salvation. So God is still the God of miracles. That's the greatest miracle of all. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for this day. And the opportunity and privilege to meet with the saints, uh, to worship you, and just to be reminded again of just some great truths and history, and even interesting story of events that happen in the book of Acts, and principles that are timeless of how you operate, and it doesn't change. You respond to people who look to you in faith. The message of Jesus Christ and his saving gospel hasn't changed. The world still hates Christians and truth. You are still gracious to sinners as you ask them to come. Your scripture can still be relied upon as it is authoritative and errant and binding and gives us guidance in this life and food for our soul. God, we thank you for that. We give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.